0: Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When Nirvana took the stage to perform on MTV Unplugged in November 1993, they were the biggest band in the world. But they sure didn't look it. Chris Novoselic used a big borrowed bass, Dave Grohl was wearing a weird looking turtleneck, and his hair was in a ponytail. And Kurt Cobain had on a natty cardigan and his hair was greasy because he hadn't washed it in a week. When they sat down and started to play, it was pure magic, raw and personal, a totally intimate and unexpected experience, captured on film in its entirety in a single take. And yet, if you watch the performance closely, you'll see that like the vintage sweater worn by the band singer, Nirvana was beginning to fray. Kurt Cobain was uncomfortable in his own skin and frustrated. He repeatedly spins around on his chair and glares at drummer Dave Grohl, telling him not to play on one song, another time telling him to shut up. If you listen to his words and the songs Cobain picked to sing that night, you might actually be able to recognize the signs that the end was near. I'm Kathy Kinzora and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we continue our look at the rise and fall of grunge. Maybe you've heard the expression, the moment you're born, you start dying. Well, the same applies to grunge. We may not have known it, but the moment grunge made it into the mainstream in the fall of 1991, the clock was ticking toward a tragic end. In the meantime, though, the huge success of Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden led to a frenzy by record labels to sign other grunge-type bands. Ed Rosenblatt, president of Nirvana's label, Geffen Records, was quoted as saying, No one can get a seat on a plane to Seattle or Portland now. Every flight is booked by A&R people out to find the next Nirvana. Joining me again to talk about grunge is Alan Cross. He's an internationally known broadcaster, interviewer, writer, consultant, blogger, and speaker. In his nearly 40 years in the broadcasting and music business, Alan has interviewed the biggest names in rock and is also known for the long running radio show and podcast, The Ongoing History of New Music. He says, as the Seattle area was picked clean of talent, the search began to extend beyond the Pacific Northwest.
1: Following the success of Nevermind, we ended up with all these other bands that weren't from Seattle, that were wrapped up in the whole grunge thing. I mean, you think about Creed, uh, Stone Temple Pilots, and any number of other bands that were grunge-ish, but were not from Seattle. They were all lumped together in this whole whole, uh, scene. Um, It happens all the time. When the record labels find something that's hot, the herd mentality takes over. They rush in, sign up everything that sounds like it's going to or could be a hit, throw it all against the wall, take the profits where they can. And then when they completely wring everything out of that scene, that sound, they move on to the next thing. That's just the the nature of the music.
0: That unique three-year period from roughly 1992 to 1995 is referred to as the grunge gold rush. Similar to the time when record label suits chased psychedelic rock bands in the wake of the Grateful Dead in the late 60s, Or when A&R scouts traveled the world for My Sharona-type bands with skinny ties in the late 70s. And record labels had money to burn to find the next nirvana. That's thanks to the combo of booming CD sales, MTV, and revenue-generating pop megastars like Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston. Every major label sent platoons of A&R scouts all over the world armed with fat expense accounts to wine and dine every halfway decent band in flannel shirts playing detuned guitars. You see, when Nirvana's Nevermind and Pearl Jam's 10 broke through, it wasn't just grunge that became mainstream. It was alternative music in general. Alan Cross says, For years, alt music and mainstream rock traveled along parallel tracks, not crossing over. As a listener, you were either in one camp or the other. But then grunge came along and punched a hole in the wall between the two camps.
1: Uh, And then, once that hole between the alternative universe and the mainstream universe was opened, all this stuff just flooded out from the alternative side into the mainstream to the point where, within two years, alternative was the mainstream. So, grunge was the thing that lured everybody in. It was kind of like alternative music with training wheels. You got into grunge and liked the attitude and you wanted to know more while well, you were led down a path that eventually got you to you know, Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains. And then from Alice in Chains, maybe you went to the Red Hot Ch- Chili Peppers. And then maybe from there, you went to Jane's Addiction. And from Jane's Addiction, you discovered Lollapalooza. And then the Lollapalooza bands like you know uh, Ministry and, and, and the Jesus and Mary chain, and it just went on and on and on.
0: And of course, over in the UK, there was the Madchester movement with bands like the Happy Mondays, the Inspiral Carpets, and the Stone Roses. Within just six months of Nirvana's release of Nevermind, the signs were everywhere that grunge had fully integrated into the mainstream. This included the band's appearance on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. Getting on that cover is something musicians have long dreamed about. It's a huge accomplishment and signals an undeniable achievement of making it to the top. Nirvana's Rolling Stone cover in April 1992 signaled that Kurt Cobain, Dave Grohl, and Chris Novoselic and Grunge had made it to the top. The photo for that iconic cover was taken in Australia in a Bush location just outside of Melbourne. It shows all three band members, but it's hard to focus on anyone else other than Kurt Cobain. That's because in the photo, he's not only wearing his signature cardigan, he also has on a t-shirt with the handwritten message, Corporate magazines still suck. The story behind the t-shirt is actually pretty funny. Apparently on the first day of the shoot, Cobain showed up wearing a shirt with a handcrafted message that read, The Grateful Dead Still Sucks. Legendary photographer Mark Seliger was in charge of the shoot and he told Cobain not to wear a t-shirt with writing on it because it would compete with the headlines. The next day, Cobain showed up in a new t-shirt that took a jab directly at Rolling Stone magazine. Seliger has said that Cobain refused to take off the shirt and also refused to take off his sunglasses. Rolling Stone co-founder and publisher Jan Wenner not only kept the message intact rather than photoshopping it out, he also apparently loved the statement. The article that accompanied the cover photo focused quite a bit on Kurt Cobain and how he was handling the band's sudden success. The story covered everything from his recent marriage to Courtney Love, they had just gotten married in a private ceremony in Hawaii, to the rumors that Cobain may have a problem with drugs, in particular with heroin. He denied using heroin, saying he doesn't even drink anymore because it destroys his stomach adding that all drugs are a waste of time because they destroy your memory, self-respect, and self-esteem. It's funny, the article doesn't once mention the word grunge, referring to Nirvana music as either punk, underground, or grassroots. Like some of the bands associated with grunge, Rolling Stone appears to have been trying to avoid the label, which by 1992 had become a bad word in Seattle. In fact, Stone Gossard of Pearl Jam refused to use it, and Ben Shepard of Soundgarden was quoted as saying, Grunge is a word used in TV commercials about scum on your shower curtains. But it wasn't the case everywhere else in the world. Grunge as a style of music, an attitude, and a fashion trend was still on the ascent there was even a grunge movie, the 1992 Cameron Crowe film, Singles. If you watch it now, Singles is a perfect time capsule about the music scene in Seattle in the late 80s and early 90s. That's because Crowe, who was a music journalist with Rolling Stone before turning to filmmaking, had moved to the city in the late 80s and knew the music and the bands intimately. The movie features a bunch of 20-somethings navigating love and life, including Matt Dillon as leader of a band called Citizen Dick. The fictional band features three actual Seattle musicians, Eddie Vedder, Stone Gossard, and Jeff Ament of Pearl Jam, who filmed their scenes while recording the album 10.
1: Other than that, he was ably backed by Stone and Jeff. and Drummer Eddie Vedder, I mean, that's good. That's a, that's a good review. A compliment for us is a compliment for you. No, man. This negative energy just makes me stronger. We will not retreat. This band is unstoppable. This weekend, we rock Portland.
0: Soundgarden and Alice in Chains also appeared in singles, which, no surprise, had a pretty killer soundtrack, with songs from the bands that appeared in the movie, as well as Mother Love Bone, Mudhoney, and The Screaming Trees. The soundtrack cracked the Billboard Top 10 and eventually went double platinum. Cameron Crowe said he was inspired to write the Gen X rom-com set against the backdrop of the Seattle grunge scene following the funeral for Mother Love Bone singer Andrew Wood. After the funeral, Crowe joined many of Wood's friends and collaborators to honour the young singer who died from a heroin overdose. Crowe told an interviewer in 2001 that the funeral for him was, quote, "...the first real feeling of what it was like to have a hometown, everybody pulling together for some people they really loved." it made me want to do singles as a love letter to the community that I was really moved by. And Crow's timing could not have been better, because the Seattle that singles was shot in during 1991 was undergoing an absolute hype storm by the time the movie was released in 1992. In the midst of that hype storm, the New York Times published an article in the fall of 1992 that was meant to educate its readers about Seattle's grunge rock scene. Unfortunately for the Times, the reporter assigned to the story fell for an extremely embarrassing practical joke. Let me explain. The reporter, Rick Martin, had called Jonathan Poneman, co-owner of the indie record label Sub Pop, but he was too exhausted to talk yet again to another out-of-town journalist about the Seattle music scene. So he flubbed the call off on a receptionist. Megan Jasper was actually an ex-receptionist at Sub Pop. She had just been laid off by the permanently broke record label, but agreed to take the call anyway. The reporter was working on a story for the paper's Styles section about the mainstreaming of grunge culture, and he wanted to put together a grunge lexicon as a companion to the piece. When Jasper heard the idea, she laughed. Mainly because grunge slang didn't really exist. But it wasn't the first time this question came up about grunge having its own vocabulary. In fact, earlier that year, the British magazine Sky had asked Jasper for a similar glossary, so she made up a few fake nonsense words that ended up getting printed in the magazine. Members of the band Mudhoney read the article and took the joke a step further by using some of those fake words in an interview they did with the UK publication Melody Maker. Now, by the time Rick Martin of the New York Times came around asking once again what Jasper considered to be a ridiculous question, she came up with a full list of fake grunge slang words and phrases. The reporter and the Times fell hook, line, and sinker and printed the entire list. Here's how it read in the paper All subcultures speak in code, grunge is no exception. Megan Jasper, a 25-year-old in Seattle, provided this lexicon of grunge-speak, coming soon to a high school or mall near you. Wax locks means old ripped jeans. Fuzz, heavy wool sweaters. Swingin' on the flippity-flop means hanging out. Bound and hagged, staying home on Friday or Saturday night. Cobb-nobbler is a loser. Lame-stain, an uncool person. Now, not to be a lame stain, but as you can imagine, just about everybody associated with the early Seattle music scene was getting a little tired of the mainstreaming of the so called grunge culture. By 1992, it was essentially just outsiders who used the term grunge. Charles Cross, the editor of the Seattle music monthly The Rocket, said grunge was an overhyped, inflated word that didn't have actual meaning in Seattle. He said it was more of a time marker than a description of music. And in Seattle, a backlash was brewing. According to Jonathan Poneman from Sub Pop, all things grunge were treated with the utmost cynicism and amusement because the whole thing was a fabricated movement. The Seattle band Mudhoney even wrote about it in the song Overblown, which was included in the 1992 single soundtrack that I told you about. A 1996 documentary about Seattle Rock, called Hype, compared the city at the time to the mall on Christmas Eve, 15 minutes before closing. It's loaded with sub-moronic idiots prancing around buying anything they can get their hands on. For many, the nail in the coffin came when Mark Jacobs, the creative director for Perry Ellis, unveiled a grunge-themed line of clothes for the fall of 1992... Jacobs sent models like Christy Turlington and Kate Moss down the runway wearing flannel shirts, printed granny dresses, Doc Martens, and slouchy knit toques. But they weren't anything like the clothes pulled out of thrift shops in Seattle. The flannels were actually made out of silk, and polyester dresses were reimagined in chiffon. The young Marc Jacobs was considered by the fashion industry as the future of American design but ended up losing his job and nearly killing his career with the now infamous Grunge collection. It's often overlooked though, that Marc Jacobs wasn't alone. Other designers like Anna Sui and Christian Francis Roth had both shown similar collections that season. But it was Jacobs who was castigated by the press, accused of killing the movement and lacking a true understanding of the industry. Courtney Love has said that Jacob sent her and Kurt Cobain the Perry Ellis grunge collection, but here's a shocker: she didn't wear it. She decided instead to burn it. Though by 2010, Love was devastated that she had burned those items from that truly iconic 90s collection. As the Seattle music scene went mainstream and Nirvana became successful, the man at the heart of it all, Kurt Cobain, was struggling. He didn't want to become another Guns N' Roses or Metallica. In the alternative world of music, where Cobain and Nirvana began, commercial success meant ruining your credibility. And early on, Cobain started doing things that he thought would shore up his credibility. For example, he refused to perform at Axl Rose's 30th birthday party and turned down a spot on the Metallica Guns N' Roses summer tour. Axel Rose had personally requested Nirvana as support on the 1992 tour, but Cobain refused and called GNR talentless people who write crap music. And Cobain even started saying in interviews that he was unhappy with Nevermind, describing it as candy ass and comparing it to Motley Crue, which was just about the worst thing he could have said. Beginning in early 1992, Cobain also famously took six months off from touring, even though Nirvana was the biggest band on the planet at the time, choosing instead to hang out in the Los Angeles-area apartment he shared with his new wife, Courtney Love. Cobain complained that he was suffering from chronic stomach troubles, but rumors continued to swirl that he was also struggling with a heroin addiction. Cobain wasn't the only one finding the adjustment to sudden fame difficult. Nirvana bass player Chris Novoselic called it traumatic to go from an underground Seattle band to the most famous musical group in the world. He said they all turned to different methods of escape. For him, it was beer and wine. For Kurt, it was heroin. Nirvana's manager, Danny Goldberg, says the first time he realized Cobain was addicted to heroin was in January 1992, when Nirvana first performed on Saturday Night Live. Ladies and gentlemen, Nirvana... Courtney Love confirmed in an interview with Vanity Fair later that year that the couple went on a binge doing a lot of drugs when they were in New York for the SNL appearance. She said, We got pills, then we went down to Alphabet City, and Kurt wore a hat, I wore a hat, and we copped some dope. Then we got high and went to SNL. After that, I did heroin for a couple of months. Love was pregnant at the time, but says she didn't know it yet. After their New York binge, Goldberg, along with a group of six or seven others, staged an intervention for Cobain and Love to get treatment. It was around this time that Love says she discovered she was pregnant. She says someone suggested an abortion, but she refused and reportedly had a bunch of tests that indicated the baby was fine. The couple went to separate detox hospitals, but after a few days, they checked themselves out. Love says she stayed clean for the rest of the pregnancy, but just before the couple's baby girl, Frances Bean, was born, the Vanity Fair article came out suggesting that she continued to shoot up while pregnant. It became a huge scandal and the couple nearly lost custody of Frances Bean after she was born on August 18, 1992. They battled with Los Angeles Children's Service who claimed that Cobain and Love were unfit parents. They were finally granted full custody of their baby at the beginning of 93. As all of this was happening, the band turned to making the follow-up album to Nevermind, and they wanted it to be less poppy and have a more aggressive sound. To achieve that, they needed to move away from the polished production they used in Nevermind and hired producer Steve Albini, who had previously worked with bands like the Pixies and the Breeders. So, in February 1993, they traveled to Pachyderm Studios in Cannon Falls, Minnesota, for a two-week recording session— The tracks were laid down quickly with few studio enhancements, which resulted in an album that was more abrasive and natural sounding. But as soon as the recording was completed, rumors started to circulate that the band's label, DGC, didn't think the album was commercially viable in its original state, and they might not release it. Producer Steve Albini refused to change anything, so ultimately producer Scott Litt, who had worked a bunch with R.E.M., was brought in to smooth out the edges and remix the singles Heart Shape Box and All Apologies. The result was the album In Utero. Released on September 21, 1994, it was a darker, raw return to Nirvana's punk ethos. But it's hard to listen to the album now without thinking about Cobain's struggles. The song lyrics and album packaging provide a peek inside Cobain's troubled mind as he struggled with his publicized personal life in the band's newfound fame. Take the song Serve the Servants as an example. Here are some of the lyrics. Teenage angst has paid off well. Now I'm bored and old. Self-appointed judges judge more than they have soul. Those opening lines were a direct commentary on his public image and the life of a celebrity since the unexpected success of Nevermind. The song goes on to address the media's attack on Courtney Love, comparing her treatment to that of a witch hunt. Looking back on the making of In Utero, Dave Grohl has said... You can describe it as a remarkable achievement, and you can also remember it as a really fucked up time. The album's lead single was Heart-Shaped Box, which Cobain said was partly inspired by a documentary he watched about children with cancer, which he said made him sadder than anything he could think of. Heart Box hit radio stations in late August 93, and the song quickly rose up the charts, giving the band a boost ahead of the full album release. The video for Heartshape Box also helped the song's popularity. It tied in with the medical theme of the album art and went on to win the MTV Video Music Award for Best Alternative Video. In Utero debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 album chart, selling 180,000 copies in its first week, The album has since gone on to be certified five times platinum and received a Best Alternative Album Grammy nomination. But probably most important for Kurt Cobain and Nirvana, In Utero delivered an artistic statement by bucking the immense pressure to put out a second commercially accessible album. Nirvana had made the album they wanted to make, and even with its raw edges and punky sounds, it was still a success. Sadly, though, it would be their last studio album. As for Pearl Jam, they came off a relentless touring schedule promoting their debut album, then headed right back into the studio. Like the guys in Nirvana, members of Pearl Jam were deeply uncomfortable with their newfound stardom. And paradoxically, they also were the target of some hate from musicians in the underground scene who called them sellouts. Plus, Pearl Jam faced the pressure of how to follow up a commercially successful debut, and like Nirvana, they decided to push back with a more aggressive and raw sound. To do that, they brought in a new producer, Brendan O'Brien, who had worked with the Black Crows on Shake Your Money Maker. The recording sessions took place at the Site Recording Residential Studio in California, which is a luxury, big-budget studio. The idyllic compound set in the hills outside of San Francisco comes complete with a personal chef, a basketball court, access to a nearby golf course, and even a sauna. It's been used by other big rock stars like Keith Richards and Neil Young and sounds like a pretty perfect way to record. Except for one thing, Eddie Vedder hated it. He told Rolling Stone in 1993 he was having a hard time recording there, saying, "'How do you make a rock record here?' Maybe the old rockers, maybe they love this. Maybe they need the comfort and the relaxation. Maybe they need it to make dinner music. In order to get himself into the right headspace, Vetter would often leave the studio and drive to nearby San Francisco, where he would spend several nights in his truck before returning to the Sessions refreshed and inspired. Obviously, it worked because the album that came out of the Sessions was another massive hit for Vetter and the rest of the band. When Versus was released on October 19th, 1993, it entered the charts at number one and sold more than 950,000 copies in the first week. 950,000 copies, that's insane. Remember Nirvana's In Utero sold 180,000 copies in the first week. Since then, Versus has been certified platinum seven times and Pearl Jam did it without releasing videos for any of the album's singles. The band decided to take an anti-video stance after the band's bassist, Jeff Ament, had a chance encounter with another musician. Mark Eitzel from the group America Music Club told Ament he loved the song Jeremy, but the video sucked. In fact, it ruined his vision of the song. After that, Ament convinced the rest of the band they should be remembered for their songs and not their videos. Verses included classics such as Daughter, Glorified G, and Dissident. You may or may not know it, but Versus was also supposed to include Better Man. The guys decided to cut it from Versus because they were told it sounded like a hit song, and they were trying desperately to avoid anything that sounded too obviously commercial. Eventually, the song was included on the 1994 album Vitology. As for the artwork on Versus, it was also chosen as a kind of statement about the band's success. The album cover features a sheep trying to stick its face through a wire fence. And although some fans have interpreted the image and the title of the album as a statement on the band's rejection of sheep-like followers, Jeff Ament has always insisted it represented how they were feeling at the time. He told Spin in 2001, As Prince would put it, We were slaves. Almost exactly a month after Pearl Jam's Versus was released, Nirvana played what many believe to be their greatest concert ever. On November 18, 1993, about two months after the release of In Utero, the band appeared on MTV Unplugged. That show has become legendary because it proved the band had a depth that you wouldn't expect from a loud grunge band. Kirk Cobain in his fuzzy cardigan and Converse sneakers, along with drummer Dave Grohl, bassist Chris Novoselic, and new guitarist Pat Smear, were joined by cellist Laurie Goldston on stage at Sony Music Studios in New York City for the acoustic performance. The MTV series usually featured musicians playing stripped-down versions of their hits— but Nirvana, in typical Nirvana fashion, decided instead to play a set list composed of mainly lesser-known material and cover versions of songs. They covered songs by bands such as The Vaselines, Lead Belly, and this one by David Bowie.
1: Oh no, not me.
0: Cobain even invited two of his musical heroes, Chris and Kurt Kirkwood of the little-known Meat Puppets to perform one of their songs. He also helped design the set, asking for it to be decorated with stargazer lilies and black candles. When asked, he said he wanted it to look exactly like a funeral. The show that was recorded that night has been described as personal and raw. It was mesmerizing and at times haunting, especially in hindsight, knowing what we know now about what was yet to come for Kurt Cobain. Prior to the appearance on Unplugged, Cobain was still struggling with his addiction, and the band was falling apart at the seams. Not only were the pressures of fame weighing on them, but Cobain was attempting to renegotiate the group's publishing so he could get a bigger cut of the royalties. But despite everything that was going on, the group, their friends, and MTV producers have all spoken at length about the concert. Everyone has said the guys were having a blast. They were tired of playing the hits and they just wanted to give their fans something special. Little did they know, they were putting on a wake, an unplanned farewell from and for the leader of the 90s grunge movement. Five months after Nirvana's appearance on MTV Unplugged, on April 8, 1994, an electrician installing a security system at the Seattle home of Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love looked through the window of a greenhouse above the garage. What he saw sent shockwaves around the world.
1: There's a greenhouse above the garage, and I was—I walked around to the door on the upper side to uh, to see about uh, getting access to runaway. We're in, in the garage and I looked in through the glass door and there's this guy laying there with a shotgun laying on his chest and uh, blood running out of his ear.
0: You might not remember this, but up to that point, Cobain had been missing for six days. He had checked himself out of rehab following an overdose in Rome the month before. An overdose that some said was a suicide attempt. When Cobain returned from Rome, he was greeted by Courtney Love, Chris Novoselic, Pat Smear, and several other friends who staged an intervention at his home. During the intervention, Love reportedly threatened to leave Cobain, and his band issued an ultimatum that they would break up if he didn't enter rehab. He agreed to rehab, but before Cobain went to the facility near Los Angeles, he purchased a gun with help from a friend. He told the friend he needed the weapon for security. After spending just two days in rehab, staffers said he alerted them that he was stepping outside on the patio for a smoke. Then he apparently jumped over a six-foot high wall and disappeared. Police believe he flew back to Seattle, but it's unclear what he did over the next few days. Perhaps he spent those days wandering around the city. Neighbors have said they saw him in a park near his home. His wife, Courtney Love, hired a private investigator to track him down. But it's believed on April 5th, 1994, Kurt Cobain went into the greenhouse above the garage and shot himself in the head with the recently purchased gun. Kurt Cobain was 27 years old. Cobain's body wasn't found until two and a half days later when that electrician looked through the window and saw a body with a 20 gauge shotgun nearby. A medical examiner's report later revealed Cobain had a very high concentration of heroin and traces of Valium in his bloodstream. For many, Kurt Cobain's death caused time to stop. It didn't seem real. And this is what it sounded like for Alan Cross on the afternoon of Friday, April 8th, 1994, when he went on the air at 102.1 The Edge to tell listeners the shocking news. It's
1: 3.38. I really don't want to do this. Um, this is the latest from Seattle a record company official says Nirvana lead singer Kurt Cobain shot himself to death at his Seattle home yesterday police say Cobain's body was found today with a shotgun wound to the head a suicide note nearby he had been recuperating from last month's overdose of painkillers and champagne his mother says Cobain has been missing for six days and she says the last time she spoke with her son she told him not to join the stupid club of other rock stars who had died early
0: I know there are a lot of alternate theories about what happened. And while some are ridiculous, others are at least thought-provoking. If you want to hear more about that day and the legacy of Kurt Cobain, you can listen to the Ongoing History of New Music's episode on the 25th anniversary of Kurt's death. We'll include a link in our show notes. In the end, though, nothing changes the outcome of what happened. Kurt Cobain was dead. And according to Alan Cross, so too was the grunge movement that had started three years earlier.
1: Grunge was really, really hot through uh, the latter part of 91, all through 92, all through 93. And if you were really plugged in, you sensed that something was starting to give in early 1994. And then Kurt Cobain kills himself. And that pretty much brings the whole party to an end. He checked out so emphatically that you could not help but think that that was the period at the end of the grunge sentence.
0: Following Cobain's death, Nirvana released Unplugged in New York, which hadn't been planned before his death. The album debuted at number one, and it won Nirvana's first and only Grammy for Best Alternative Music Performance. Sadly, Cobain's death would not be the last high-profile grunge death. Lane Staley, the lead singer of the pioneering grunge band Allison Chains, died of a drug overdose in 2002. He was 34. Allison Chains, who gained national attention with his 1990 EP We Die Young, sang bleak visions of death, addiction, and despair, set to grinding minor key guitar riffs. Throughout his career, Staley struggled with drug addiction. And on the band's second album, Dirt, in 1992, he sang directly about heroin addiction in songs like Godsmack and Junkhead. In May 2017, Chris Cornell reunited with other members of Soundgarden for a concert at the Fox Theatre in Detroit. Reports said he was in fine form and spirits as the Seattle Quartet tore through a two-hour show. A few hours later, Cornell's security guard found him dead on the bathroom floor of his hotel room. He was 52 years old. Another grunge pioneer gone. Toxicology tests showed there were various prescription drugs present in his body, including Ativan, along with barbiturates, caffeine, the anti-opioid drug naloxone, and a decongestant. Following his death, Cornell's wife sued a doctor who she said over-prescribed the singer Ativan. In May 2021, the case was settled out of court. There were other grunge-adjacent tragedies as well, including the 1995 overdose of Blind Melon singer Shannon Hoon. In the days immediately following Cobain's death, Eddie Vedder didn't seem sure if even he would make it. He was struggling with his own demons and was quoted as saying, "...all these people lining up to say that Kurt's death was inevitable, well, if it was inevitable for him, it's going to be inevitable for me too. Kurt's death has changed everything. I don't know if I can do it anymore." Of course, Eddie Vedder carried on, but according to Alan Cross, grunge had soon run its course.
1: But by the time we get to the end of 1995, and certainly by the beginning of 1996, it was apparent that things had begun to move on. I mean, that was a really good run, I mean, four or five years. Things were really starting to to move on, and uh, Generation X had aged out of that period of time when they were, uh, music meant everything to them. And they were being replaced by the next generation who, after years of, uh, of, of what was turning out to be a pretty prosperous decade, what, wasn't really interested in the dark, heavy, angsty stuff that Grunge was offering, that alternative music was offering. And we entered in a, into a very big pop phase with the Spice Girls and Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera, and culminating with the boy bands of NSYNC and Backstreet Boys by, by, by 2000.
0: These days, whether you like it or not, grunge music and grunge anthems like Smells Like Teen Spirit aren't just classics. They're classic rock. But in a good way. The Seattle music of the 80s and 90s still sounds amazing. And that's why new generations of music lovers continue to discover it in all its glory. Meantime, in Seattle, according to the website Northwest Passage, the music scene today remains as vibrant as ever, albeit through a more decentralized music scene and an array of music acts spanning many genres. The indie sub-pop record label is still around and has actually been more successful in the 2000s than it ever was during the grunge heyday, hitting it big with non-grunge acts like The Shins, The Postal Service, and The Head and the Heart. Seattle and Sub Pop moved on from grunge a long time ago. And what about the bands that put the genre on the map? Well, we know Nirvana disbanded after Cobain's death. Chris Novoselic dabbled in music but eventually quit. Dave Grohl went on to form the incredibly successful Foo Fighters. Following Chris Cornell's death in 2017, Soundgarden struggled, and in October 2018, they officially called it quits. They did, however, reunite in January 2019 for a one-off concert in tribute to Cornell. Today, over 30 years later, Pearl Jam still exists and Eddie Vedder has the illustrious position of being the last frontman standing from a time that now seems like a lifetime away. Thanks for listening to this deep dive into the grunge movement of the 80s and the 90s. And thanks again to Alan Cross for taking the time to guide us on this journey. His amazing show, The Ongoing History of New Music, can be found anywhere you stream audio. If you're not already a listener, I highly recommend you check it out. If you have a suggestion for a topic you would like us to cover, please let me know. You can reach me through Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at That90sPodcast. You can also email me at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Gonzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston, with special editing assistance from Stephanie D'Souza. See you next time for more History of the 90s.